This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello to the New Books Network. Today, we will be interviewing D.B. Maroon about her collection of essays titled Black Lives, American Love, Essays on Race and Resilience. D.B. Maroon has a Ph.D. in anthropology from UC Santa Cruz. Welcome to the show, D.B. Thank you so much for having me. What is your background in academia and what led you to writing your newest publication, Black Lives, American Love? I have my PhD in anthropology from UC Santa Cruz, and I went on to UC Santa Cruz's graduate program after completing my bachelor's at the new school, which back then was called the New School for Social Research. And I say that to contextualize the relationship that I was able to develop uh, with the work of the Frankfurt School, first in my studies in New York, and then subsequently uh, at UC Santa Cruz. Do you have other reviewers talking about your book? And what have the reviews said about your work since Black Lives American Love came out? Well, the formal reviews have been really generous and heartening to read. Ms. Magazine uh, says that it's, you know, candid, thought-provoking, must-read. Kirkus Reviews uh, gave the book a, a wonderful review. But I have to say that having had the opportunity to speak firsthand with readers is where the reviews that fill up my soul have come from. And I have been hugged by so many Black women who have read this book and seen their reflection in these pages. People of color who have read this book and said, this is the voice that I've been waiting for, and allies who have thanked me for opening up another framework, another window for them to think through American culture. And what about academic publishers? Did you look for academic publishers before landing at Lawrence Hill Books? So Honestly, Nathan, my publication journey was actually very similar to my academic journey. I tend to put all of my hopes and aspirations into one focal point. I knew that I wanted to go to the new school. That was the university that I wanted to attend. I knew that the University of California at Santa Cruz was exactly the right fit for me. That's where I wanted to go. And Chicago Review Press's Lawrence Hill Books imprint was exactly the publisher that I wanted my book to be published with. The Lawrence Hill Books imprint is 
one of the most storied African-American imprints in the country. And I knew right as I was beginning to start the book that that was the home that I wanted my book to have. Like any author, I queried tons of publishing houses and many different agents, but uh, those were all always backup plans. And I am just absolutely delighted to be at an imprint that hosts the likes of books like Soledad Brothers and Asada Shakur's biography. It's it's just, it's an incredible experience, honestly. Which of your essays were in print before they were inputted into your book here? So you have magazines and different websites that you're affiliated with? So I have been, I, I'm a public scholar. Uh, I've been a public scholar uh, for the last 15 years. And I have been interviewed in many different uh, mainstream media outlets. My publications prior to this book uh, were academic essays. And every essay in this book is coming to the public for the first time in this book. Uh, None of these essays have appeared elsewhere. What is the critical theory lens that you use in Black Lives American Love? That's a really interesting question. And I think the the most accurate answer is to say the lens of emancipatory praxis, the lens of emancipation as the primary modality of transformation for the body politic. So the experiences that we have in culture can always be assessed and analyzed through dynamics of power and injustice. But I think that the offering critical theory has to those of us who are applied scholars, those of us who are actively working in community, the offering of critical theory very much lies in considerations of what emancipation means. And I say that because there's sometimes a frame that gets applied in academia that emphasizes the power and social inequality lens of critical theory in a way that doesn't shine light on the power base within minority communities and minority groups so that we're kind of frequently focused on the ways in which particular communities are disinvested, disempowered, um, and how those power dynamics play out and how those power dynamics come to be. And as an applied scholar, what 
I have experienced over the last 15 years is the front lines of the way that that singular emphasis becomes corrupted within a philanthropic framework, within a government policy framework, so that instead of thinking through the assets within communities, instead of thinking through the emancipatory capacity within communities of, by, and for themselves, we're thinking through the needs, the lacks, the scarcity within communities. So emphasizing the capacity for emancipatory practices within the Black community was really central to me in the way that I wanted to explore these topics in the book. Can you elaborate on the central message or thesis that you aim to convey through all of your essays on race and resilience? The central thesis is actually very simple. Tell the truth and practice love. How do you define and explore the concept of resilience within the context of Black lives in America? Well, this again is a reality in Black communities throughout America today and across the many stories uh, in our history that we certainly have injustices that we are confronted by. We certainly have systematic operationalized forms of racism that we are compelled to uh, overcome or suffer through. But all of those truths take place alongside the fact of our ongoing self-liberations. All of those truths take place alongside our ongoing embraces of joy, of style, of happenings. We are such a self-actualized culture. And when we look at all of the gifts and the contributions that Black Americans have made to American culture writ large, we see threaded throughout those contributions an insistent call to joy, an insistent call to the appreciation of life as it is on life's terms. And being able to celebrate Black culture, while also acknowledging the truths in American culture, is essential. Let's dive into some of your essays. Which particular essays of yours focus on historical events or figures providing a deeper understanding of the challenges faced by the Black community? Well, you know, the short answer, of course, is every essay in the book. <laughs> um, I think that the essay Black Space is uh, a dance between uh, those issues that we face 
and provocatively returning the lens back to those celebrations and those cultural traditions um, that we utilize to thrive. The essay uh, that I have toward the end of the book, The United States of America Origin Stories, really walks through the becoming history of systemic racism. And what I mean by becoming history is beginning with the foundations of how systemic racism gets hardwired into the the texts and the documents that uh, found the country and also how those same texts and documents may present the very tools that we need in order to unwire the kinds of systemic injustice that continues in America today. In your exploration of race, do you emphasize the diversity of experiences within and without the Black community? Well, let me, that's a two-part question. So let me take the uh, second half of the question first, and that's the diversity of experiences external to the Black community. So the, the reality of American culture is that different racial cultures are always uh, intertwined with one another. And part of what I wanted to do with the essays in Black Lives American Love was to challenge readers to think about white culture in particular and non-Black cultures more generally through an array of um, paintings, an array of stories. And so we see the experience of uh white nationalism on the ground with, you know, people who are waving Confederate flags and have signs with terrible statements against immigrants. And that's a part of non-Black American culture at this moment in time. We also see uh, Irish Catholic people who are uh, engaged in the absolute heart of what agape love means. Um, There are so many different stories throughout the book that represent both the, well, I'll say they represent the multitude of perspectives and alignments that are present in non-Black cultures throughout the country. In terms of the diversity of the Black experience, this is threaded through the essays in really a a scaffolded manner in, in a series of layers. And the very first layering is the, the writing style itself. Uh, throughout the essays. And so what you won't find in any of these essays is a uniformity of the speaking voice. As a Black woman 
who has uh, experienced what it means to be a CEO, to run a research institute, as a Black woman who's experienced what it means to be in uh, the academic setting, and as a Black woman who's experienced what it feels like to be uh, impoverished in the United States of America, and as a Black woman who experiences regularly what it feels like you know, to spend time with my best girls. My voices are many, and the essays in this book reflect the spectrum of my own experiences and voices uh, in the world. And through that writing process, I wanted to open up a space to celebrate and acknowledge how extraordinarily diverse Black culture in America actually is. The diversity of perspectives, opinions, styles, customs, traditions. I mean, you really don't have to go further than to ask people what the right recipe for macaroni and cheese is, you know, to identify that there are many different traditions within our community. And this book is very much a celebration of that from Afrofuturism to hip hop to classical. It's all in there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. How does your work address both the emotional and psychological juxtaposition when it comes to resilience in the face of racialized challenges or uprisings? There are a few different essays in the book that um, offer people tools and inspiration and considerations for how to embrace their own uh, engagement with joy and their engagement with personal liberation, their engagement with self-love and self-care, uh, all of which are the foundations for resilience. And one of my favorite essays that does that is called Fire Keepers. And in this essay, I tell the story of having learned under Professor Angela Davis at UC Santa Cruz. I share the story of having been friends with author, choreographer, uh, playwright, Ndzake Shange, and the story of my friendship with uh, community activist, Miss, Miss Shirley Rivers. The stories of those women are threaded through a description of what I learned from those women. Uh, and the way that those women 
taught me through modeling, right? So this, they weren't sitting down and lecturing me. They were living their lives. And by being able to witness the way in which they lived their lives, I understood the stakes of liberation demand that we make room for our own sensuality, that we make room for our own practices of love for ourselves and love for others, that we make room for laughter and humor and grace. And as I say in that essay, what these women taught me is that a liberation struggle without those pieces of the recipe, without those seasonings and components, that liberation is not going to be realized because we will be fatigued and burnt out well before uh, we get to the vision that we are trying to realize. And the other essay in the book that really speaks to resilience from uh, a personal space is the final essay in the book, American Love. And I share the lessons that I learned from watching my mother uh, not be able to overcome her traumas uh, in an unjust country and the early loss of life that uh, was the culmination for my mother of not being able to overcome those traumas and the way in which being witness to the actual stakes of what it means to not be able to overcome our traumas, to not be able to love ourselves for who we are as we are, just because we are, when we are not able to do that, this actually has the consequence of our lives. You know, my mother passed away at 58 years old. And people ask me, you know, what did your mother pass away from? And I always tell them, you know, my mother passed away from black woman's disease. She had uh, eight different chronic illnesses, all of which were preventable and all of which are related to stress. And for me, the inheritance that my mother left me was to recognize that I would need to make a deliberate choice about whether or not I was willing to sit in the center of my trauma and my pain and my grief in order to begin to recognize myself as a woman worthy of love already and exactly as I am. And that's an invitation that crosses all lines and all cultures, and that I hope readers of this book will be able to snap up that invitation and look into their own lives and find those ways in which they are ready to move through the trauma and embrace themselves in love. Are there any recurring motifs or symbols throughout your essays that hold any particular significance to you in conveying your message? 
The recurring motif throughout uh, the book is love. We as a culture, and this is the case with uh, cultures in many nations throughout the world at this historic moment in time, we are plagued with uh, calls to engage in acts of rage, to engage in acts of unkindness as forms of everyday practice, to engage in acts of hatred as forms of everyday practice. That kind of engagement has been re-normalized. And if we stop and we think about the errors of enslavement in the United States, when we stop and we think about the era of Jim Crow in the United States, we see in those eras that what sustained injustice was the normalization of acts of unmitigated rage, hatred, and unkindness. And so in this moment, to have these constant provocations that are culturally accepted, whereby any of us at any space in the political spectrum, any of us in any positionality are easily provoked and easily tempted into engagements with rage and hatred. To sit in such a moment is to have to ask the question, who do we choose to be in the face of temptations to be lesser than who we are? And do we choose in this moment where it's perfectly normalized to hop online and go on all caps, you know, it just go in hard on people you've never met. That's a normal practice at this juncture. Judgment of strangers is a normal practice at this juncture in our culture. And so I wanted in these essays to send out that clarion call reminder that the the self that any one of us truly aspires to is never a self that can be found guilty of cruelty that can be found guilty of unkindness or unnecessary hatred. The self that any one of us truly wants to uh, be found true to is a self that is demonstrating love in every manner and at every opportunity. And throughout every single essay in this book, there are declarations of love and invitations to understand what you can do as an American at this moment in time to embrace and engage acting in love. Can you act in communal love or to say in your exploration of this topic, do you provide examples of successful community act? actions or community initiatives or movements? 
Well, one of my favorite stories in the book is from an essay uh, called Agape Village. And in this essay, I share the story of a community that I lived in Brooklyn. Uh, I lived in, in Brooklyn in the 1990s. And I love this story because it's a reminder to all of us that certainly there is always a need for formalized, institutionalized uh, transformation and uh, liberatory praxis. But all of that also requires and demands the informal um willingness of community members to come together on one another's behalf. And the community that I lived in is a neighborhood called Red Hook in Brooklyn. And this community just absolutely cared for one another. This is the 1990s. We were at the height of uh, the AIDS HIV epidemic. We were at the height of um what at that time was uh, the crack and the heroin epidemic. Uh, you know, there on our street were people who were suffering from the effects of drug addiction, people who were suffering from the effects of HIV AIDS. There uh, were people who were food insecure, myself included. Um, and in our community, I tell the story of how nobody came through for us. You know, there were no uh, nonprofit agencies. There were no government caseworkers. There were like, there was none of that. It was the just extraordinary agape drive of elders within the community who created this intergenerational fabric of care and through that intergenerational fabric of care, every single person on our block was cared for. Every single person on our block found their fundamental basic needs met. And, you know, as a person and as an anthropologist, being able to be part of to benefit from and to bear witness of that kind of community culture was just extraordinary. How do you address the role of education when it comes to fostering Black community? So this is actually a really provocative question because on the one hand, the the truth of American public education is actually the inverse of the question. The truth of the American public educational system is that the educational needs and the educational infrastructure created for formerly enslaved uh, Black Americans is the driving foundation of the expansive public education system that fosters American culture writ large today. So the historical reality is that 
educational imperatives voiced by Black Americans have helped to foster an American culture that until very recently appreciated and prioritized uh, education as a public benefit. Can you discuss any specific cultural or artistic elements that play a significant role in your essays, whether that be some sort of art or music or mural, anything? Well, there are um, two influences, uh, three, I should say. There are three influences um, that shaped the construction of these essays. First and foremost is jazz. And one of the shocks of my life was finishing Toni Morrison's jazz and understanding that she had not written a book about jazz, but she had performed jazz through the written word. And I took that and said, you know, I I want to try my hand at performing jazz through the written word. So certainly jazz is there. And the other cultural form uh, that really shaped the way the book came together is quilting and quilting particularly uh, within the black communities tradition uh, of that art form and thinking about the ways that black American quilting uh, practices take us to West African cultures. They take us through maroon culture in America. They take us through uh, generational transformations in the Black community. And a quilting for uh, the Black tradition is something that is so continuously changing from one era to the next, and yet at the same time honoring these fundamental traditions. And so I wanted to, I wanted to honor and acknowledge uh, that in the way that the essays are quilted uh, together. And then, you know, the, the final artistic impact, um, is the work of Greg Tate, who's a cultural critic, uh, musician, composer. And part of what Greg did in his work and his presence was to give all of us access to uh, the griot, to the modernized messenger and to show us what it could look like to play in language in the same way that uh, musicians play in sound. Are there essays that specifically address systemic issues or institutionalized politics? The primary the essay that I was just kidding. 
<laughs> That's my edit ask right there. <laughs> um, the essay that directly affects institutional um, injustice is called Movements After May. And the essay contrasts and also stitches together the moment in the spring of 2020 when George Floyd was murdered and the moments in the spring of 2020 when Black and brown communities were being disproportionately impacted by preventable deaths from uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And the essay traces the pledges and promises that were made in the wake of George Floyd's death through to the all of the ways in which Black and brown communities were abjectly failed by public health policies during the pandemic, um, rendering our communities with absolutely devastating uh, death rates in that pandemic. And when we look at the aftermath of Uh, all of the allyship for the Black Lives Matter movement that we saw in 2020, the aftermath of that allyship has actually been um, a failure of pledges and promises to be fulfilled. It has been a failure of institutions to mobilize for equity in ways that Uh, they publicly promised that they would. And that landscape gives us uh, a really salient set of information to re-examine how institutionalized racism actually is. Because if it were not the ability of institutions, public, private, and otherwise, to fulfill those pledges uh, would not have been so terrifically difficult. And the outcomes that we would have seen two to three years subsequent to pledges would also have been very different. Instead, what we've seen is billions of dollars in pledges unaccounted for financially, Uh, meaning monies were pledged that were never distributed. What we've seen is uh, strategic plans that have punted uh, the issue of equity down the timeline, two, three, five, ten years. Uh, And we've seen a continuation of all the same data sets that we saw before 2020 uh, when it comes to the disparities in outcomes for Black Americans. And the essay walks through all of that and poses a question uh, to the reader. And, you know, I I draw on the work of... uh, an amazing photographer and essayist Cole um, 
in order to bring home the point of, uh, in his words, you know, what happens when we, and I'm paraphrasing, but what happens when we momentarily engage with horror through an image and think that because we've momentarily engaged, um, we've done something, we've satisfied some requirement when in fact we have not, uh, and the system goes on. So the entirety of that essay really looks to lay bare what institutionalized injustice looks like and leads to at this moment in American culture. How do you envision your work contributing to the ongoing conversations about race, both within academic circles and in broader public discourses? Well, I I wish for two things. The first is I wish that this book will encourage academics to begin to engage with uh, applied scholars. And that's not to suggest that academics can't also be applied, but I think that we're at an inflection point and we very much need for those doing work within academia whose um, engagement with the communities and whose engagement with applied scholars is limited to specific research endeavors, we very much need for those scholars to start participating in bridge building um, with the communities that their work will ultimately impact. And I hope that this book offers academic uh, scholars and um, I hope that it offers those in academia some tools and some pathways to start considering what is at stake in developing community-based relationships outside of uh, the walls of the academy or the research agendas of the academy. So that's that's a first hope. And the, the second hope I have for this book is that um, other authors whether they're non-academic or they're academic, I hope that this book reminds authors, inspires authors um, to take hold of their voice and the authority to author texts that are um, quilted to author stories that um, do not have to bend to the notion of a singular voice throughout the text, that do not have to bend to the notion that the audience that you're writing for should be an audience outside of your community, but that you can write for your community. You can write to a very particular audience an audience who already knows your shorthand and that others will come to the work and benefit from the work and appreciate the work. 
So I, I hope that there's, um, you know, this book is, is part of an emerging canon, uh, or I should say a re-emerging canon. I think that, you know, through the 1950s and the, the 1960s, early 70s, we saw just this incredible valuation of eclecticism within texts of uh, layers and quilting and jazz notes within a text. And, you know, in the past few decades, there's been a move to um, really focus authors in on cultivating these very singularized, uh, almost monotone style formats. And certainly within the Academy, there's been just an incredible move to force authors into uh, dedicating such large uh, amounts of space to uh, citing and footnoting and referring. And some of my absolute favorite essays in anthropology uh, were published in the 1940s and the 1950s. And you, you know, can read a 15 or 20 page essay from that period of time and get to the end and find that there are just, you know, four references and there's no literature review required for the essay. So it's really time for people to be able to break free of some of these status quos that generations of us have been trained to think are the only way uh, that we can have our writing be valued. And I, I really hope that my book, Black Lives, American Lives, um, is part of that reemerging revolution. Can you share instances where your perspective either evolved or changed in some way during the writing process of these essays? That's a very big uh, question. So the reason I say that is because uh, I have something around the magnitude of a 15 to 1 ratio in this book. So for every one page uh, that you read as a reader there were at least 15 pages <laughs> before that, which, uh, you know, were the, the drafting process. And um, the final year of writing this book of essays was uh, just an everyday act of radical deconstruction. Um, the essay... Uh, Black Spectrums, for example, was um, three times longer than it currently is. And part of what I needed to think through and part of the evolution of my process as a writer with this text was what amount of history is necessary to give readers the framework they need in order to think about the present. The other part of the evolution for me was a continuous a continuous practice of beating down the ego 
And what I mean by that is, especially as a writer with an academic background, there's such an entrenched desire to present all the facts and all the data and all the details and all the discoveries and the truth, particularly for those of us who are not on tenure tracks, uh, the truth is, is, is that that desire to present information for the purposes of being able to show other people just exactly how much we know, that desire is an ego-driven desire. And confronting that every day and continually asking myself, is this page, is this paragraph, is this sentence, is it in service of the story? Is it in service of the text or is it in service of your ego? And asking and answering that question, you know, I think made this uh, a cleaner, tighter, more narratively precise work of art. And it also made me a better person in the process because that that struggle to beat the ego is the struggle of a lifetime. And for me, like for everyone else, you know, it's forever ongoing, but it's in the practice of doing it, of making the effort um, that we find ourselves. What stereotypes or misconceptions do you dispel? There is a misconception across America that the Black experience is a subset of American culture. The Black experience is a subset. It is a subculture of American culture. When I consider that my ancestors were in the United States of America by the mid 1700s that my black ancestors were here on the eve of the American revolution, that they were uh, in some instances working the land as freed people on the eve of the American revolution. Uh, You know, as I detail in several of the essays in this book, Um, My ancestor, Solomon Stark, was uh, a mason who literally helped build the city of Richmond. When I consider those experiences of my own ancestors and I multiply them by the hundreds of thousands uh, of all the other Black Americans who have been here since the 1600s, and then I consider the normalization in America of the idea that American culture, when we say American culture, what we mean is white culture. And when we say black culture, what we mean is a subset of American culture. That is so very far from the truth of American culture and the complexity of American culture. And 
throughout several of the essays in this book, um, I draw on stories of uh, American history from the founders on forward. I draw on stories of my own family and uh, certainly wide bodies of uh, social science to really start to provoke and challenge that narrative um, so that for some readers, for uh, those who really want to start a dialogue based in truth and reality, the term American culture will be a term that brings to mind uh, the history and the stories and the traditions and the values and beliefs of Black Americans as well and as immediately for the subconscious. The other stereotype uh, that this book dispels is this notion that Black communities are spaces uh, of scarcity, of lack, of crime, that they are spaces that people who are not from our communities, you know, have a right to speak of disparagingly or have a right to uh, present as threatening. And the essay, uh, Black Spaces, really goes to the heart of debunking uh, these mythologies by first putting the mythologies out there, putting the stereotypes out there for exactly what they are. You know, there's a, a documentary right now on one of the streaming services that goes over this incident that happened in uh, Boston uh, where a gentleman said that his, and I use that term loosely, uh, that that his car had been carjacked and his pregnant wife had been murdered and that a black man had done it, you know, a black man from inner city Boston. And I can vividly remember the news reporting at that moment in time, showing police officers going door to door in black neighborhoods for over a week, officers going door to door to look for this supposed killer. And that entire experience that was inflicted on our community uh, was an experience that happened because the assumption of the white man who said this crime had been committed, the assumption of his innocence was the start point of the investigation and the assumption of the guilt of a black predator, as it was put back then. Uh, that assumption, again, was the start of the investigation. We see this case play out over and over again, whether we're talking about the uh, exonerated five uh, or any number of other instances. And the essay Black Spaces puts those uh, puts those stories on the page, and then turns the attention to the actual true stories of what it feels like to inhabit Black space of four people in Black communities. And it's a, a celebration and a narration, uh, if an excavation, if you will, of just 
all the different kinds of cultural realities, whether it's, you know, uh, hearing someone call your name and thinking that it's your mom, like this is a particularly black experience and you would run home uh, to go and make sure uh, what it is that your mother or who was calling you needed. Um, the fact that almost every one of our communities has a, a street named MLK or like a street named after a historic African-American person. Um, you know, the fact that in almost all of our communities across the country, we have uh, a tradition of summer music festivals and so on. And just being able to say, you know, here's the stereotype uh, of Black culture that frames the white imaginary in America. And here's the reality of Black spaces and Black cultural traditions that we actually experience in our communities. What about the impact of technology and social media for you when you were writing? You know, I really did not uh, engage... I didn't engage the impact of social media and technologies um, in any of the essays in this book. That's uh, a topic that I really am looking forward to being able to address in my next a book of essays. The, the research on that is actually currently underway. And yes, it does involve uh, you know, monitoring ongoings on Black Twitter and, and more. Um, but so my my dissertation was about the effects of, we used to call social media uh, new media technologies. Like that's that's how old, uh, you know, the, the whole concept. And when I wrote my dissertation, there were very, very, very few tools or methodologies available to social scientists who wanted to understand the cultural impacts of new communication technologies, new media technologies on cultural practices and vice versa. Um, And so, you know, again, for this book of essays, I did not want to explore this area that, um, you know, is so very involved for me. Uh, But I am looking forward to exploring it in my next set of essays. Can you tell the New Books Network more about your next set of essays? And also, what do you have planned for the future regarding anything that we've already talked about or that you want to add to this podcast episode? Well, my most immediate plans uh, are to be able to provide readers with uh, dinner conversations. And I am really excited about uh, this project. Uh, They are the Ida B. Wells Dinner uh, Project. And featuring conversation talking points to help people have discussions about Black Lives, American Love. And 
uh, for readers who are listeners, I should say, who are familiar, there's a, a tradition that uh, is still ongoing of something called Jeffersonian dinners. Um, it's a, a particular dinner conversation format. It's utilized for all different kinds of purposes. And one of the essays in Black Lives American Love goes through the legacy of the Jefferson Hemings family, uh, as well as the legacy of the uh, Washington family. Um, And so in thinking about how I wanted to bring this book to life for readers, um, that I want this book to be both an engaged reading experience and an engaging dialogue platform that the the book should come off the page. And so I thought it would be just really exciting to shift that uh, tradition of the Jeffersonian dinner into a tradition that's particular to uh, Black heroines and to begin to invite people into conversation. So that project launches in uh, January of 2024, and we are hoping to have national dinner conversations uh, in homes across the country. So that is something that I'm really looking forward to. And the next book of essays uh, is, as I said, going to uh, be thinking about the impacts and the utilities um, and the possibilities uh, presented by new technologies. Social media is just one of those. Um, And that is all I'm going to say for now. Any final thoughts for the New Books Network? Well, thank you so much for having me and for hosting this conversation. Um, You know, I love the New Books Network. I've listened to numerous podcasts uh, on the network, and I'm really deeply honored to have been invited uh, as a guest. And I just thank you so much for your time, your considerate and thoughtful questions. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. We all thank you for being here. You listened to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore. We can thank D.B. Maroon for adding a new episode about her collection of essays titled Black Lives, American Love, Essays on Race and Resilience, out of Lawrence Hill Books. To get more episodes like this one from the New Books Network, please subscribe.